Thanks for joining us this morning. I want to encourage us all to keep Pastor Derek and his family in our prayers. Just pray that they sense the peace of God and the presence of God in this season. And with Pastor Derek out, I'm stepping in to preach this morning. It's a privilege and an honor. And as I was thinking about what I'm going to preach on this morning, I was reminded about a pastor who lives here in town and pastors a church here in town by the name of John Lynch. John Lynch, a couple years ago, wrote a book called The Cure. And The Cure is a story of a man who kind of all he knows is to fear God, think that God is like frustrated at him, and, and to all he knows is to be part of a community where you kind of put on a mask and you don't really reveal your true self. You put your best foot forward and it's a story of how he learns that God loves him and God's grace is for him. And he learns what it looks like to be part of a community that accepts him how he is for who he is and his struggles. It's a beautiful, wonderful story. And John Lynch, what he does is he interacts in his story around this question. What if God isn't who you think he is and neither are you? Let me read that again. What if God isn't who you think he is and neither are you? You're probably thinking to yourself, why are you asking this question? What, what's the point of this? I, I've never really wrestled with who God is or who I am. I know who God is. I want to pull you back behind the veil of kind of an average pastoral conversation. I want to pull you back so you can kind of see what a lot of pastoral conversations are like. When somebody calls into the church office saying that they need to talk to a pastor, they want to talk to a pastor, or if, if somebody reaches out to me because they have a need or there's prayer or maybe, maybe they're struggling with mental health and they're just in a place of despair, of depression or anxiety, or maybe they're struggling with a certain situation. They lost their job or they're struggling financially, or maybe they're struggling with a sin struggle that they've wrestled with for years. Whatever it is, when I meet with somebody in those positions, normally what I do is I get to a place where I'd like to have them articulate for me what they believe God's response to their situation is and God's response to them is. I want to know in those times of despair or if they're going through tough times or wrestling with sin, what they think God thinks of their situation and them. And oftentimes when they articulate this, the word that would come to mind of what they sense or what they feel God thinks about them is condemnation. Condemnation. They believe that God is maybe mad at them for their continual sin struggle. I've even had people who are going through a rough time financially and in life and with health say, I think God is mad at me and I think he is getting back at me for something. Uh, people who struggle with mental health, I've heard them say things like, man, I, I just, I don't think I have enough faith and I think God is mad at me or he thinks ill of me for it. And so a lot of times with this idea of this God of condemnation, I spend times in these meetings unwrapping these views of God with people and hopefully offering a new belief of a healthy view of God that's loving, that's grace-filled, that they can step into and find themselves in. 
Now, a lot of the times in these conversations, I would say the majority of the times, I take people to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 in these conversations is actually used for me more than any other chapter in the Bible. And so I was slated to preach next week. And over the last couple of months, I was thinking about it. I'm like, you know, it's the most used passage in the Bible for these pastoral conversations and I've never preached on it. And so I decided next week that I would preach on the second half of Romans chapter eight. But then with Derek out this week, um, stepping in, I decided then that I would preach on the first half of Romans eight. So that's what we're gonna dig in to today. Would you pray with me and we'll continue on. Lord God, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for your love and your mercy and your father-like tenderness and compassion. We thank you that we can be found in that as your children. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you continue a work in which you have started in us and that you continually be faithful to complete it. Lord, do that work even this morning, we pray in your name. Amen. Romans chapter 8. I'm just gonna start at verse one. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me. If not, it's totally fine. I will be reading it out loud. But Romans chapter eight, starting at verse one, here's how it starts. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life, so the Holy Spirit here is what he's talking about, the Spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead, I mean the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, it gives life to you and it has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We're gonna stop there for now. And there is a lot here. And so we're gonna begin to unpack some of it. Going back to verse one, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want to say those of you who wrestle with this idea that maybe God is condemning you, that there's condemnation there. I just straight here from Scripture want to tell you if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. But this phrase, this thought starts with this word, therefore. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. And so I want to encourage you when you read your Bibles, when you study your Bibles, maybe if you're at home or in another context, anytime a thought or a phrase starts with the word therefore, what it is doing is it's connecting the following thought to a past thought or idea. So maybe you've heard this before. When you see the word therefore in scripture, ask, what is therefore? Therefore, the word therefore is tying this thought, therefore there is now no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The word therefore is tying it to a past thought. And so I wanna bring us into some of the past thoughts in Romans leading up here to Romans 8. Now, Romans was written by the Apostle Paul. Now, there's a couple reasons 
possibly why he wrote it. Actually, there's four main reasons to possibly why he wrote it. I hold the opinion, just like with some other moments in the New Testament, that Paul wrote it because there was contention and strife between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And so... What I believe Paul does is Paul starts taking jabs in the first couple chapters of both sides so that when he gets to chapter three, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He, he levels the playing field among all people, all have sinned. And then he begins walking us through these ideas and themes in scripture. And so we get from chapter three to chapter four. And okay, if we've all sinned, then how are we right with God? And he makes a case that we're not right with God by works or following lists of do's and don'ts. And he brings us back into Abraham. And he says that Abraham was found righteous by Faith. Now, if you've been part of the Galatians study so far, this is what we're talking about. Our justification, our right standing with God has nothing to do with our works, our list of do's and don'ts, and everything to do with faith, putting our trust and allegiance in Jesus. And so righteousness, our right standing with God, is only by faith and not by what we do and don't do based on our works. And then we get to chapter five of Romans and he talks about Adam and he, he talks about uh, how Adam in, in chapter five, verse 12, he says that sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and through that death came and death came to all people for all have sinned. He lays the playing field down again. He levels it and says all have sinned, but he attaches that sin because it's passed down to all people from Adam. And then he brings Jesus into the picture. He considers Jesus as the new Adam. And so when we are found in Christ, we become a new humanity with a new head of humanity, which is Jesus instead of Adam. One of my favorite authors in the early church, a guy by the name of Athanasius of Alexandria, in his work on the incarnation, I read it every Christmas, he kind of makes this joke about how we've had a head transplant. It's gone from Adam to Jesus. And so now through Jesus, as we put our faith in him, we are a new humanity. We see that sort of language in the New Testament. We are a new people. But here's what Paul gets at over the next couple chapters leading into chapter eight. Man, we're, we're a new humanity in Christ. But the issue is, is we still wrestle with our old humanity that is sticking around, that is attached to sinfulness, that is a part of the old system that came from Adam. And so we know this wrestle. Man, we try to do what's right and we get tripped up, right, by our sin nature that is just sticking around and, and that we wrestle with. And we get to chapter seven, right before chapter eight, and Paul talks about this. Then he brings this idea of the law back. So if we're not found righteous by works of the law, then what is the law? And what he winds up doing is he actually attacks 
attaches the law, the lists of do's and don'ts that were given by God to his people, he actually attaches it to the old order of things, the, the old system, the sin nature, the flesh that is attached to the order of Adam and sin nature. So he says, he, he attaches it to that. And he says that it's that the law, any list we give of do's and don'ts will actually trip us up. Like it doesn't give us the power to actually accomplish righteousness. We'll continually be frustrated by it. And then we get to Romans 7, starting in verse 18. And when we get to there, he says, I keep doing the things I don't want to do. Things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. I mean, we all have experienced that. Then we get to verse 24 before we get into chapter eight. He says, what a wretched man am I? Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Then he changes thoughts here before he goes into chapter eight. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So that old system, both the sinful nature, but also the need or the desire to find righteousness and do's and don'ts and being tripped up because we just can't do it. We've been delivered from that. Through Jesus. This is good news. And this is the last thought before, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation because of the new order of things, because of our righteousness in Christ. Now I'm gonna read on here and then uh, and, and then I'm gonna bring us into something else here to get us to kind of chew on it. So therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse two of chapter eight, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit that gives life, so the Holy Spirit here has set us free, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Now there's a lot there. But basically what it's saying here is that we continually try to find our right standing with God by a metric system that first of all is attached to our old humanity and it doesn't have the power to actually do what we want it to do. This is why as we fall short, as we continually trip up, as we're attempting to live out this metric system, we then hold on to shame and we think that God condemns us. That metric system of attempting to do do's and don'ts for righteousness, it does not have the power to do what you think it's gonna do. And when we look at Jesus, if we're found in Jesus, we realize we already have it. We already have it. In the late 80s, we got cable for the first time, and it was exciting because all of a sudden with cable, we get the Disney Channel, we get all these movie channels, Nickelodeon. I love Nickelodeon, especially like the late 80s, early 90s. There was nothing better than Nickelodeon for a child. And But we didn't have a VCR yet. And so if we wanted to rent a movie, we'd go to 7-Eleven around the corner and we'd rent movies, but we didn't have a VCR, so we'd have to rent the VCR too. 
And about a year later down the road, my parents decided we're going to buy a VCR. So we bought our first VCR. And I remember it was exciting because we already had like the Disney Channel and all the cable channels. And so with something on the Disney Channel or TNT or TBS or even on Sunday nights, there'd be the wonderful world of Disney and a movie would play. Anytime those would come on, we could hit record on the VCR. We could record it and we could keep it forever. Like this was the first time that we were able to do this and it was exciting as a family. One of the first movies that we recorded was The Wizard of Oz. Now, in The Wizard of Oz, you have Dorothy, you have the Scarecrow, you have the Tin Man, and you have the Cowardly Lion. And they all set out for Emerald City, and they set out to to see the great and powerful Oz, because they believe that when they find the great and powerful Oz, that they'll finally get what they're looking for, right? A brain, a heart, courage. When they finally get it, he will grant them what they're looking for. And so when they get to the Emerald City and they finally meet, you know, the great and powerful Oz, who isn't at all what they thought he was, they were let down, they realize that he doesn't actually have the power to give them what they wanted. What they find out in this journey is they've had it the entire time. See, in our Christian life, we're fighting, we're white knuckling, trying to reveal or trying to show that we are good enough for God's love. We're good enough to be considered righteous based on a metric system, based on keeping things tight, living a good Christian life. The issue is, is that does not actually have the power to give us what we want. And when we're found in Christ, we've had it the entire time. Our righteousness is not based on us and our ability to do or not do certain things. It's fully found in Christ. We step out in faith to walk with. Now we see this tension here between the Holy Spirit and the law of the Spirit, the way of the Spirit and the law of the flesh, the law that was attached to the old order of things, this list and do's and don'ts. And this is this tension that we walk with. I think sometimes we don't actually believe that it's just given to us by grace as we walk out by faith, that it's just, it's there. And that the Holy Spirit is actually doing the work in us, in his timing. We think we're on our own trying to figure it out and get it done. I'm gonna continue reading the second half of verse three. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So it sets that up. We don't live now according to the flesh. We live by the spirit. So I want to go back to that first phrase in verse three, uh, halfway through verse three that I just read. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin. What did he condemn? He condemned sin. Sin. This is so simple. And Paul is very explicit and purposefully explicit here to show that condemnation is attached only to the sin. 
Now, it's very important that we see this, that condemnation is placed on the sin. Condemnation is only attached to the sin. It's this simple. It's not attached to anything else. I mean, here and I, we could split hairs on this on a whole other conversation, but condemnation isn't even attached to Jesus. Condemnation is attached to the sin that is placed on Jesus. This brings us back to the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, you could read this in Leviticus. What they would do is once a year, the high priest would place the sin on a scapegoat and send it out into the wilderness to take the sin away. And so the condemnation here is on the sin. So here's the deal. When it's placed on Jesus and dealt with, when sin is dealt with, that means because condemnation isn't attached to anything else, that there is no condemnation. It doesn't exist. It's not even there because sin has been dealt with and the condemnation is attached to the sin. I want to move us on in this idea of flesh and spirit. It's so easy for us as Christians to think, man, this Christian life, we're, we're to do this thing to clean up our act on our own. And by, when we do that, we move into works of self, works of the flesh. We try and do it according to a metric system that is part of the old nature that we've been freed from. We're gonna look at verse Five of chapter eight, it says this. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance to the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. So here, it's talking about a mindset. What do we place our mind on? We could either place our mind, if, if we live according to the flesh, we're gonna place our mind on the things, the, the, the desires of the flesh. But if we're walking in accordance to the spirit, our minds will be set on things that the spirit desires. When we look at this idea of our minds being set on flesh, desires, many of us, are, our, our, our thoughts go to, our ideas go to this idea of letting our minds just go down the tubes. Just totally, our minds become depraved and rotten and, and corrupt. That's a part of it. That's a part of it. We're called out of that. We're freed from that. But I actually think that we could set our minds on our fleshly desires by focusing so hard on avoiding our fleshly desires. I think that's a part of what Paul's getting at here when he's kind of wrestling with this whole metric system of do's and don'ts and living according to that or, the, or, or according to the spirit. You see, we could set our mind on the desires of the flesh by focusing on avoiding the desires of the flesh. If we get so focused on avoiding the desires of the flesh, our mind is set on them. I was raised in the church and I was raised in Christianity brought up in it. And I was raised in the late 90s, early 2000s. And it seemed like Every sermon at youth group, I went to a Christian school, so then every sermon in chapel was 
Don't go to parties, don't drink, don't smoke, don't sleep around. Don't go to parties, don't drink, don't smoke, don't sleep around. Don't go to parties, don't drink, don't smoke, don't sleep around. And then sometimes when prom would come, they'd invite us to all sign a document that we wouldn't do those things. And we get so focused on don't do that thing, don't do that thing, don't do that thing. We sign these documents, we put rings on our fingers saying that we won't do that thing. And then that ring just sits on our fingers reminding us not to do that thing. Now, here's the deal is our minds are being so focused on the sinful fleshly desires that we're trying to avoid. Now, avoiding those things is good. As a parent, I don't want those things for my kids. I don't want them to walk in their fleshly desires. But I know that if I lead them in the ways of Jesus and I lead them in the ways of the Spirit, that we will not be focusing on our fleshly desires. And that's a call for all of us as we disciple one another, as we parent kids. It's a call to set our mind on the things of the Spirit. I have a friend who's a motorcycle driver. I'm not interested in motorcycles at all. But he is one who uh, is a car collector, loves motorcycles. And we were talking one day actually about this idea of, of do's and don'ts and sinful desires versus life of the spirit. And here's what he said. He said, you know, Dave, I, I was trained in motorcycle school. That if all of a sudden something happens on the road in front of me, like an accident or something, or something's out on the road, like maybe there's just a backpack laying there or something. If I want to avoid that and avoid a crash, he said that if he focused on avoiding that thing or that accident or whatever it is, if you focus on avoiding that thing, he said, you'll most likely crash because you're so focused on it. He said, what you need to do is you need to look past that thing and set your gaze on something else to drive towards the direction of what you're setting your gaze towards. I think this is key for us in our Christian life, that we set our gaze towards the things of the Spirit. And it's possible to set our gaze on the desires of the flesh, not just in allowing our minds to be depraved and to fall into sin, but to be so focused on avoiding those things. Verse six, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it even do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. If you're part of our Galatians study in a couple of weeks, we're gonna to get to Galatians 5. I wanna to read to you Galatians 5, starting verse 16. It says this, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So instead of focusing on the desires of the flesh, walk by the spirit. It says this, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do whatever you want. But I tell you, if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. 
So we think that following the law and the list of do's and don'ts will actually free us, give us the power to do it, but we're called to walk by the Spirit, and we're not even a part of that system. And when we walk by the Spirit, we do not fall into gratifying the desires of the flesh. Over the next couple verses, 9 through 13, just kind of says a lot of the same things and unpacks this idea. This idea now that our obligation isn't to the flesh or fleshly means or, or, or the system of metrics of measuring righteousness by that system. We're not called to that. We're called to the spirit. But sometimes in our Christian life, we feel like we're obligated to be me-centered, do things on our own. And then what it does is it turns here in verse 14. You see, because we're called out of that life. As a matter of fact, Paul uses the term set free. We're set free from those ways. And in this, what we now find is that we've been adopted. We've been adopted into the family of God. He's now our father. And so in verse 14, this is where we're going to kind of wrap up. It gets to this idea of adoption. It says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. So you don't need to live in fear. You don't need to live in fear of your sin. You don't need to live in fear of condemnation because of sin. You've been released from that. You don't have to live in fear anymore. It goes on to say, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Yeah, the Spirit tells us, the Spirit reminds us, we need to be told those things about our identity. You see, identity is important. What we believe about ourselves is important. Because I believe that when we believe something about ourselves, we just naturally live it out. I'll give you an example. I'm sorry for those of you who aren't a fan of this, but I am a San Francisco Giants fan. I have been for years. I lived in the Bay Area for a while. I was raised around some of the old players from the late 80s, early 90s. I had the opportunity when I was in the Bay Area to work for the organization a few times. I love the San Francisco Giants. Huge fan. I know if I say, if my identity, if I say I am a San Francisco Giants fan, what that does is that gives me license, but also pressure to live out that identity, wanting to put bumper stickers on my car, jerseys on, watch all the games. I want to live it out. And so what happens is because we don't always believe that our identity is in love, received, no condemnation given children of God, because we don't always believe that, the Holy Spirit reminds us. The Holy Spirit leads us into that identity. My grandparents, they used to foster children. And when my mom was raised and my uncle were raised when they were kids, they always had foster children at their, their home. Their home was in Omaha, Nebraska. Random story. I wasn't raised there or anything, but I wound up going to college right across the street from the house my mom was raised in. It was this big green Victorian house. We used to call it the Green Burrito. It's just a big Victorian house, but they had enough room and space where they wanted to foster children and care for children that were in rough backgrounds. 
And so there was one day, my grandma told me that there was one day that there was a kid and they couldn't find him anywhere. They looked all throughout the house for him and they were freaking out. They're like, oh no, where is he? And so they walk outside and they see him in the back alley at the trash cans. And he's picking through the trash cans. And my grandma sits him down. And my grandma asks, why were you digging through the trash cans? And he responded, he said, I was hungry. And my grandma, I mean, th thinking about this, this kid, for whatever his past life, his past systems, his uh, past patterns of life have been, he believes that when he's hungry, he needs to go to the trash can for it. My grandma said, you know, you're under our house now. And under our house, we love you. And what we have here, the blessing of what is here is yours. And so when you are hungry, all you need to go and do is go to the pantry to get food. And my guess is when this kid heard this, because of years of living a specific way, he probably wrestled with that idea. He probably thought to himself, is it really that easy? Like, do I just really just need to open the door and go to the pantry? He probably even next time he was hungry, even just that was running through his head. Do I go to the trash can or do I go to the pantry? Because going to the pantry just seems too wonderful. Seems too easy. You see, my grandma, she didn't look at him with condemnation. She didn't see him going to the trash can and step back and say, you know, with a judgment in her mind, I hope he figures it out. I hope he figures out on his own that there's a pantry he can go to. Now, her loving presence, the love that she has, which trust me, I know, and her loving voice, which trust me, I know, spoke new identity to him and invited him into a new way. And if he chose to follow that way of love and identity and a new voice, if he chose to follow those things, if he chose to follow those things, it was that easy. But he had to hear her voice. He had to hear her voice. He had to step in to that reality and hear her loving voice. You see, I think oftentimes for us, we're running to the trash cans. It's all we know. That's all we know. And we think that maybe the way we view things, because, you know, there is a pantry out there. There's something better. We, we think that God is at a distance watching us with judgment, hoping that we just figure it out on our own, that we just are going to make it to the pantry on our own. But no. The Spirit of God, the presence of God, the love of God surrounds us and it speaks new identity and invites us into something new and sits with us as it offers this new way that is away from a past life with love, with kindness, with patience. That's what the Holy Spirit does and we're invited into that to focus on that, to set our minds on that, to, to listen to that, to believe that today. So there's an invitation for us here. Now, 
as you hear this idea of following the Holy Spirit, like, man, that sounds all good and all, but like, how do I even know I have the Holy Spirit? And how do I even take the first step towards this? I mean, all this stuff seems like nice and ethereal concepts, but like practically, what do I do to take the first step? And I'll say this. Scripture is clear that those of us who have stepped out in faith, it's here in this passage and in other places, those of us who step out in faith, we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says actually at one point that the Holy Spirit is the down payment of a future resurrection life, a life without any of the bondage of sin. And and he's working this new life out of us, but we receive it when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. This work happens when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. So there's a call for you this morning. If you're there, you're like, I want that. I want this new life. I want this God-centered, Holy Spirit life. I want this righteousness that comes by keeping in step. This righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus the power of the Holy Spirit that does what I cannot do for myself. There's a call for you this morning. I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. You can make a decision to step out and follow Jesus today. I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. You could pray this prayer or pray your own words, but if you don't know what to pray, maybe these words will help you. Pray with me. Lord God, thank you so much for salvation. Jesus, thank you for dealing with sin so now there's no condemnation. So God, thank you for leading me to this point. I give my faith to you, Jesus, and I wanna walk in the newness of life guided by you through the Holy Spirit of God. And I pray this in your name, amen. Then I wanna lead us into another thing around the filling of the Holy Spirit as we're looking at what does this mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Paul says something really unique in Ephesians. In Ephesians, it's very similar to some of the other books of the Bible. There's this tension between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And Paul talks about how we're all one in Christ. And then he talks about how we're a new humanity, like what we talked about. And in chapter five, he gets to this moment where he talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's what he says in Ephesians 5, 18 through 19. He says, Do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. And we look at that, and here's what we see is there's something about being filled with wine, being drunk with wine, that actually you're not being filled, you're not following the Spirit. You're being controlled by something else and it leads to debauchery because you're not following the Spirit. But he says, but then instead be filled with the Spirit and what it is then attached to is singing. Here's what I wanna say. This is is what I'm gonna say about being filled with the Holy Spirit. There's something connected to if we are a Spirit-filled new humanity in Christ, we are a singing people. And so what I've done is, is, is I, I wanna invite us here to do something different than we normally do at the end of one of these services. In a minute, I'm, I'm gonna come back and close out with a couple last minute thoughts. But before we get there, when we're still in this idea of being a spirit-filled new humanity, I want us to sing together for a minute. And so would you turn up the volume and would you join your voices as we sing?
see the Father's love for us How vast beyond all measure That He should give His only Son To make a wretch's treasure How great the pain of searing loss The Father turns His face away As wounds which mar the chosen one Bring many sons to glory Upon his shoulders Ashamed I hear my mocking voice Call out among the scoffers It was my sin that held him there Until it was accomplished His dying breath has brought me Life. I know that it is finished And I will not boast in anything No gifts, no power, no wisdom But I will boast in Jesus Christ His death and resurrection Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer But this I know with all my heart His wounds have paid my ransom this I know with all my heart His wounds have paid my ransom How marvelous, how wonderful And my song shall ever be 